Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 22. Last week, I covered Shear and Ekron, both places found on the list at the beginning of Joshua Chapter 13. A list of the places not conquered by the Joshua-led Israelites. I covered a few of those places earlier, and that installment was the beginning of working through the remainder. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. One of the things I mentioned last week about the city of Ekron was that its Canaanite deity was Beelzebub, and how many considered this to be one and the same as the more well-known Beelzebul. And with that, let's get started. What queued up the history of Beelzebub is in a passage in 2 Kings chapter 1. That passage reads, with my usual paraphrasing. After the death of King Ahab of Israel, Moab rebelled against Israel. Ahaziah of Judah, Ahab's son, had fallen through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay injured. So he sent messengers, telling them, Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. That's right. The freshly minted king of Israel was injured and wanted to know when he would get better. So he sent some men to ask a Canaanite deity. You should know how this is going to turn out. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Get up, go to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub? the god of Ekron? The angel then tells Elijah to relay a message to the king. King Ahaziah will not leave his bed, where he will surely die. Elijah does as he's told, and gives that message to the king's men. The messengers returned to the king, who asked them, Why have you returned? Their answer was, There came a man to meet us, who said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, he shall not leave the bed to which you have gone, but shall surely die. The king was slightly more than curious, and probably a little scared, and he asked, What sort of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. He said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. As for being called a Tishbite, what that means is a matter of dispute. It was likely a reference to the town of Tishbe in Gilead. I'll get to what little is known about that place in the future, likely in Volume 2 or later of the podcast. Back in the text of Second Kings, King Ahaziah sent a captain in his army, along with 50 soldiers, to Elijah. They found the prophet sitting on top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and the men. Another fifty men and a captain are sent to Elijah, where they are met with the same fate. Wonder who was next to be voluntold. 
There are a few iterations of this before the angel comes back to Elijah and tells him to go see the king. He does, and tells the king the message he has been relaying all along. Because he sent messengers to inquire Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, the king will never recover from his injuries and will die in his bed. And he does. All of this gets me to the Canaanite deity, Beelzebub. It's this passage in 1 Kings that is the source of the name Beelzebub. In fact, this is the only place in the entirety of the Bible, both the New and Old Testaments, where it is found, at least in this form. Though the more general name Baal is found throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes, especially early on in Genesis, as the name of a person, and in other places as a place name. But more frequently, it's the name, or at least part of the name, of a Canaanite deity, such as in Numbers 25, where we're told that the Israelites began to sacrifice to the Canaanite gods, more specifically, the Moabite deities, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Thus, Israel yoked itself to Baal a payer, and the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. I touched on this in chapter 5, episode 19, but saved the deeper dive for this episode. Overall, the name Baal is Ugaritic, meaning from the language derived from the area around the city of Ugarit, located on the coast in the modern country of Syria, so north of Canaan. In Ugaritic, the name is thought to translate to Lord, though opinions vary. The name that followed would then be the specific deity, like Baal-Payer, as seen in Numbers, or Beelzebub, like in 1 Kings. And it's this Beelzebub that some have translated to the phrase Lord of the Flies. More on that in a minute. The version of Baal was the ruling deity of Ekron, one of the cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. There is the pseudopographical book, probably written in one of the first couple centuries AD, a Greek work known as the Testament of Solomon, at one time claimed to have been written by King Solomon. The work, whoever wrote it, claimed that Solomon enslaved particular demons to help build the temple that bore his name in Jerusalem. And here, Beelzebub is rendered the same as it is in 1 Kings. In this work, the Canaanite deity appears as a prince of demons and claims he was formerly a high-ranking angel. He was associated with the star Hesiphorus, but which, as it turns out, was really the planet Venus. This Beelzebub claims to cause destruction through tyrants, to cause demons to be worshipped among men, to excite priests to lust, to cause jealousies and murders in cities, and to bring on war. Quite a job description. This work, along with others from the same period, is thought to have served as the basis for early Christians' beliefs about various demons. Some even contend that this work led to the general understanding of the demon known as Lucifer, who in many cases is treated synonymously with Beelzebub. More on that in a minute, too. But first, I need to circle back to his name. It was likely the Ugarites who suggested that Beelzebub, 
translated to Lord of the Flies, but not in an insulting, pejorative sense. Instead, they viewed this bell as having the ability to expel flies, and in this case, that also meant the ability to heal, or at a minimum, drive off death, which would explain why King Ahaziah sent messengers to the Canaanite temple. Now to circle forward for a minute. It was in this sense, and in Mark chapter 3, that we're told that Jesus was compared to Beelzebub because of his ability to heal, at least by the temple scribes. Matthew 12 makes a similar comparison, except in that case, it wasn't the scribes, but the Pharisees. No surprise there. Luke 11 doesn't name who makes the comparison. In all of these recountings, Jesus goes on to tell the people, in one form or another, every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I cast out the demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And that's it for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was later, in the A.D., that the Greeks took a different approach to the name. Instead of associating it with driving off flies, and instead by making the claim that Beelzebub attracted them, about the same time, a similar comparison can be found in rabbinic literature. What's unclear is which one was first. Both of these led to his association with pest and excrement. The Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament recorded the name as Beelzebub in some locations and Bel Muian in others. The second rendering is the one that translates to Bell of Flies. A 2nd century A.D. translator known as Symmachus was attempting to make the name even more offensive by translating it as Beelzebul, meaning Lord of the Dung. Combine these translations with the book Thought, at least at the time, to have been written by Solomon, and you end up with a rather unsavory character. In some instances, he was considered one of the seven princes of hell capable of flying, which led to the name Lord of the Flyers, yet another derivative of Lord of the Flies. There is an extremely minority opinion that those translations are way off the mark, and the name refers to something more positive, like a lofty house, or even more generic, 
simply a high lord. But those translations didn't stick, and instead the Septuagint led to the Syriac and Latin Vulgate translations of the New Testament Gospels, which in turn led to the King James, and with this, Beelzebul stuck, as did the flies and demon associations. There were several writers from 16th and 17th century Western Europe who built upon this. The summary is that they usually claim Beelzebub ranked high in hell's hierarchy. When he was chief lieutenant of Lucifer, he led a successful revolt against the devil. I could find no explanation of what happened after this revolt, according to that writer. Another claim that Beelzebub was among the three most prominent fallen angels, the other two being Lucifer and Leviathan. 17th century writer John Milton, in his epic poem Paradise Lost, identified an unholy trinity made up of Beelzebub, Lucifer, and Ashtaroth, with Beelzebub as the second ranking of many fallen angels, just below Lucifer. Beelzebub was also a character in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, first published in the 17th century. During this time, Beelzebub was associated with various deadly sins, including pride and gluttony. Another writer, in this case Englishman Francis Barrett, claimed that Beelzebub was the prince of false gods. That one seems obvious. And that wraps up Beelzebub likely more than you expected about an ancient Canaanite deity. Next up is the place known as Ashkelon, which gets me back to Joshua 13. Here, the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis were mentioned. Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. I've covered Gaza, Ashdod, and Ekron, which leaves Gath and Ashkelon. Given the constraints of time, Gath will have to wait until the next episode. Ashkelon was a coastal city in Canaan. Like many of the ancient cities in the region, the first sign of life dates to the Stone Age, but full-scale occupation would likely come much later. It's located directly on the coast, though the city would be developed about a mile, one and a half kilometers inland, on a hill, north of Gaza and south of Jaffa. Unlike many of the cities in the region, this one shows evidence of what may have been a more permanent occupation much earlier. At the site, over 100 fireplaces and hearths have been uncovered, along with numerous fire pits. Despite this, no dwellings have been found, and only a single wall. Also, the occupation from the period may have been sporadic, as various levels have been uncovered, the next built atop the earlier, usually with a layer of sea sand in between. This may indicate that the area was occupied more on a seasonal basis than permanently. And that wasn't all that was found. There were also over 100,000 animal bones and nearly 20,000 flint pieces. While that number is rather astounding, there's something else. In most other places, the flint pieces outnumbered the bones, but not here where the ratio is reversed. This may indicate that not only were the animals hunted, 
but they may have also been raised as livestock. And given the proximity to the coast, salt from the sea may have been used as a preservative in their rudimentary meat processing. When the permanent city was finally occupied, it was built on a sandstone outcropping in the coastal plain. What also made the site both attractive and livable was a good underground water supply. Eventually, and probably by the Middle Bronze Age, there were likely as many as 15,000 people living within the confines of the city's walls. And it continued to grow to the point that between about 2000 and 1500 BC, the city would be built on nearly 150 acres, which is 61 hectares. Its walls ran over a mile and a half, over two kilometers. They were some 50 feet high, about 15 meters, and in places 150 feet, 46 meters thick. This is so large that the typical mud brick wouldn't do. Instead, they were stone-lined to provide support. The design was so significant that much later Roman and then Islamic fortifications would follow the same basic design. All of this was built atop a hill, a tell, in a semicircular pattern. On one side was the land, with the wall between the city and the surrounding region. On the other side was the sea, with a bluff serving as a natural barrier. At the bottom of the bluff was the coast and a harbor, and in between the coast and the city was a 20-foot-wide, 6-meter road that ascended rather steeply from the harbor. At the top of the slope, and to enter the city, everyone and everything had to pass through a gate. What all of this translates to is that the city was well-positioned for ocean-going trade, but still protected from invaders, whether by sea or land. This would prove vital for the next few thousand years. From the outside record, an artifact, a small, finely cast bronze figure of a bull calf, and by small, it was about 4 inches, 10 centimeters in length. It's believed that the statuette was originally covered in silver. Because of the prevalent Canaanite religion of the period, this figure is thought to have been associated with Baal. Also from the period, and in Egypt, mentions of Ashkelon have been found in the 11th dynasty excreation text, along with mentions in several 14th century BC Armana letters. The general thought is that the city thrived economically due to trade. This may have been seen in its name, thought to be related to a Semitic word meaning to weigh, like most items traded in the era were. Despite the protection afforded by the location and walls, the invading sea peoples conquered Ashkelon around 1150 BC. Similar to what has been found elsewhere in the region, the artifacts from this period show Greek influences. While it was under the control of the sea peoples, probably turned Philistines, the city rose to such great prominence that it became one of the five cities of their Pentapolis so prominent that the 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus wrote that its Temple of Venus was the oldest of its kind, imitated even in Cyprus. He would also record that the temple was pillaged by marauding Scythians in the 7th century BC. 
So well protected was the city that it would be among the last Canaanite cities to fall to Nebuchadnezzar in 604 BC. But it did fall, and when it was conquered, the Babylonians burned it, taking all of the residents to their exile. And with that, the Philistine era in Canaan, well, really in general, was over. But the city wasn't abandoned. Places in strategic locations rarely are. It would be rebuilt in short order. As their Babylonian captivity ended and the people returned, the thriving city was once again vibrant, but not free. The Persians were quick on the scene in influencing the culture. Not long afterwards, in the 4th century BC, Alexander defeated the Persians and Ashkelon was offered a bit more autonomy all while being transformed into a Greek seaport. The city would get along better with its neighbors than it had when the Israelites and the Canaanites were freer from outside influences. At this time, the Greek-derived Hasmoneans were ruling in the greater region. In one weird event in the 2nd century BC, and during the reign of the Hasmonean queen Salome Alexandra, the court of Simeon ben Shatash sentenced 80 women to death in Ashkelon, who had been charged with sorcery. In the next century, and when Herod the Great was the Roman client king over Judea, he did not have complete control over Ashkelon. Despite this, and being the great builder he was, he had bathhouses, elaborate fountains, and even large colonnades constructed in the city. For a while, many researchers thought this was due to his having been born there, but that theory has not panned out, with the current thinking that he was from the southern Judean city of Idumea. Eventually, Ashkelon would come under the control of the Roman Syrian province, to the point that it remained loyal to Rome during the First Jewish-Roman War, a war that was waged between 66 and 73 AD. Artifacts from the period include two Roman burial coffins depicting battle, hunting, and famous mythological scenes. As the Roman Empire turned Christian, Ashkelon would become an important regional city for the faith and would remain important enough that it appears on the 6th century mosaic Madaba map. But it wasn't exactly a holy city. In the 20th century, Ruins of baths dating to between the 4th and 6th centuries AD were found. The bathhouses are believed to have been used for the world's oldest occupation, primarily due to nearly 100 mostly male infant remains being found in a sewer under the bathhouse. Those were rough times indeed. On a better note, and also dating to the period, the remnants of a 4th century Byzantine church with marble slab flooring and glass mosaic walls, along with a synagogue from this period, have been uncovered. Similar to what happened with the Babylonian invasion, Ashkelon would be one of the last regional cities to fall to the invading Muslims in the 7th century AD. The Byzantines fought back and recaptured the city, but that was only a temporary reprieve, with the Muslims regaining control shortly afterwards. The Crusaders and Muslims fought over the city during the First Crusade, but the Muslims managed to maintain rule over the city, even after the Crusaders came to control Jerusalem 
And, since Ashkelon remained a vital seaport, trade between the Muslim-controlled city and Crusader-controlled Jerusalem continued, despite the overall military conflict. In 1134, the Crusaders would capture the nearby port of Tyre, giving them a better seaport for trade. And with that, Ashkelon's economic importance diminished. Three years later, and after a seven-month siege, the Crusaders captured the city and would hold it for nearly 50 years until 1187, when the Muslims recaptured it. Four years later, and fearing it would fall back into European hands, the Muslim leader Saladin had the city destroyed. The leader of that crusade, England's King Richard I, had a fort built atop the ruins. Almost 60 years later, the Egyptians retook the city, driving the Crusaders away, which returned it to Muslim rule. The Mamluk dynasty came to power in Egypt in 1250, and 20 years later they would have the city, its fortress, and harbor destroyed. After that, everyone left, abandoning the city. Through the Ottoman era, and even into British Mandatory Palestine, the city would remain sparsely populated. After the nation of Israel was created, in the subsequent wars, eventually Ashkelon would become part of that new country. The ancient ruins of Ashkelon are currently a national park on the country's southern coast. The walls that encircled the city are still visible, along with Canaanite earth ramparts. The park contains Byzantine, Crusader, and Roman ruins. It's 31 miles, 50 kilometers south of the modern city of Tel Aviv, and 8 miles, 13 kilometers north of the Gaza Strip. And that's it for Ashkelon, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll begin with Gath. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.